Good morning. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. In the next two Sundays, we're going to be wrapping up a brief series on some of the Psalms that's taken us through the summer. And in the Psalms, we find these ancient prayers. They were set to music. And the Psalms teach us how to express our, our emotions, our experiences, uh, all sorts of experiences emotion, and emotions, the full gamut, to express these to God in prayer. The Psalms teach us how to pray, and they encourage us to meditate on the truth of God in whatever our situation might be. And today's Psalm, Psalm 33, we come to a Psalm that is just straight up a song of praise, a simple song of praise. And I ask you to consider today the joy in it. You look at this psalm, consider its emphasis on joy. It begins with the words, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And as the psalm concludes, we hear these words, for our heart is glad in God because we trust in his holy name. The psalmist, as a lead worshiper, was expressing joy. And in doing that, the psalmist invokes it in us. He encourages us to express joy in the Lord. So the first 25 years of my life, I was raised in a Christian family. And, and for the first 25 years, uh, I spent time in, a good amount of time, in several different branches of the church uh, with, very, with different flavors and styles 
of, of worship. Uh, and uh, during that time, probably the most influential for me was my, uh, my experience in a charismatic church for about five years. Um, that was probably the, the mood of worship that most influenced me uh, more than any other. Then after about 25 years of life, I, I landed in the Presbyterian church. I was 26 years old. And uh, I was drawn to the Presbyterian church because of its beautiful theology and its worldview. Uh, but as a recovering charismatic in, in my... <laughs> In my mid-twenties, I, I found the Presbyterian mood of worship to be a bit constrictive. And even for me, because in charismatic circles, I seemed really like, I, I was really like, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I was really mellow, yeah. Yeah, really mellow in, in, in the charismatic church. But even for me, uh, recovering from that, I, I found the, the Presbyterian mood of, of worship to be a bit constrictive for me. And what I mean by constrictive is, you know, when you sing more softly than you speak naturally, uh, or, or when you clap off of the beat, uh, things, things like that. That was my initial experience with Presbyterian worship. And, uh, you know, it was intellectually stimulating, which I still value very much, but it was a bit, for me, um, emotionally stifling. And, and I, I don't say that, I don't intend to insult anybody, insult anybody here, and I don't intend, I hope you will see this as we go through this message, uh, I don't intend to diminish anybody's preferred mood of worship or uh, character or personality in worship, uh, not at all. And if you're new to Christianity, you may not even know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, but I do pray that your time with us at Deep Run will be helpful to you. I do, though, intend to encourage a balance of head and heart in our worship and in our lives as well. Because what we do in worship together is, is really practice for the rest of our lives throughout the week. Do you have joy in worship, regardless of how joy expresses itself in you. We've got introverts and extroverts and all types here, all types and stripes from different backgrounds. That's not what I'm getting at today. But do you have joy in your worship? Do you have joy in life? I don't want to confuse or I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean by joy. So when I use the word happiness, and similar to what Jonathan Snack said to the children earlier this morning, I'm looking at happiness as when you feel that you are blessed because of your good circumstances. When I speak of joy for the rest of the morning, I'm talking about knowing that you are blessed regardless of your circumstances, comprehending that you are blessed no matter what the circumstances. Americans believe that it is our civic right to pursue happiness, and I think that is a very good thing. But Jesus Christ calls anyone who would follow him to a higher aim in life. It is the pursuit of joy. And I hope you will see today from Psalm 33 that joy is a blessing of the Christian life. But you have to pursue it. It is a natural consequence of living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But to experience joy in him, you must pursue joy. And I want to talk to you about the importance of joy as we see it in the Bible. And I want to talk about how to pursue joy 
in our lives, not only in our worship, but in our lives. And finally, talk about how God fulfills his joy in us. So the importance of joy, the pursuit of joy, and the fulfillment of joy. If you read through the Bible, you will find out very quickly the importance of joy throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the Psalms, especially in Psalms like number 33, even in Psalms that are confessions, as Ed said earlier, like Psalm 51, even there, there is joy. Joy is actually a consequence of experiencing the nature of God personally, experientially comprehending God's qualities and attributes and meditating on the qualities and attributes of God. For instance, if you look at verses four and five, the psalmist says, first he says, shout to the Lord, sing a new song to the Lord, play with skill on your instruments. He's, the reason why he says we should do that is, for the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is why there should be joy. He also goes on to say, as the psalm progresses, that God's spoken word created all things and that by God's wisdom, the thinking of humanity is far outshone. Actually, he closes in verse 18. He goes on with this progression to finally say, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. One commentator conveys the idea, because all of this is true, this is what the psalmist is saying, because all of this is true of God, we should sing. We have something to sing about. We even have something to shout about. One commentator says, the psalmist says in verse 2 that because of the beautiful nature of God, having experienced it, and meditated on it, it gives us a reason to worship him in three ways, with fervor or abundance, with freshness, like a new song, a new expression, and finally, with skill. He's worth it. He's worth our skill. He's worth our exuberance and fervor. And he's worth the freshness of our new perspective as we continue to reflect on his goodness and greatness, his justice and righteousness, his steadfast love, meditating on all of it. Joy is a consequence of experientially comprehending the true God. Now, of course, joy as exuberance, you know, shouts, is, is not the only fitting response to God's nature, is it? You see in verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. This is the conclusion of the song. Our soul waits for the Lord. Now, obviously, waiting requires stillness. Waiting requires silence. And joy can be found in stillness and silence as well. And the Psalms are more than stillness and silence. The Psalms are full of doubt of people at their wit's end in tight places in life restlessly pleading out to God for mercy. People who are in fear. In a few places in the Psalms, even people who have reached despair. All our emotions and demeanors matter to God because he created us as emotional, not only intellectual and physical, but emotional beings. All emotions and demeanors matter 
Each has its place. So joy also must have its place in our worship and in our personal lives. And as you read the New Testament, you discover, and especially through the Apostle Paul, that joy is one of the fruits, one of the consequences, one of the byproducts, the outflowings of life lived by the Spirit of God. When we keep in step, as Paul says, with God's Spirit who indwells every believer, when we keep in step with Him, there are several natural consequences that come to walking a life with Jesus. And one of those fruits is joy, the second one in Paul's list. Joy is essential. It is also logical, and it is even attainable. For somebody who personally knows this God that the psalmist is singing to. But if all of this is true, why is our joy sporadic? Why is our joy intermittent, infrequent? And you may even be asking yourself, why does it seem that joy in my life is non-existent? It's an important question to ask, but let me answer it with another question. I want to ask you, are you pursuing it? Have you ever thought of joy that way? Are you pursuing joy? Grace is a gift. If you've been reading the Bible, if you're familiar with the central truth of Christianity, it is that you can't earn favor with your Creator. You must receive the gift of God. Grace is a gift. But things like joy, they are disciplines. Joy is a discipline. Paul, when he was chained to a Roman guard near the end of his life, wrote to his friends, the church in Philippi. And a big theme of Paul's letter, Paul the prisoner, was joy. And he says in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. This is the prisoner speaking. I will say it again, rejoice. How though? You think to yourself, I don't feel like rejoicing. Actually, I can't rejoice right now because of what I'm going through. But watch what he does. He goes on to say in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. It's the same word Jesus used for worry in the Sermon on the Mountain. Why do you worry about things? It's the same Greek word. Now, I think that reveals in Paul great insight. What robs us of joy is fear. Jason Gray, the contemporary singer, sings these words, there's no thief like fear. You want to experience Christian joy? You must counter-move against anxiety and fear. Now, how do you counter against fear? Well, here's Paul's antidote to fear. In verse 6, he says, not only do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And I just want to highlight the idea there of thankfulness. Thankfulness in everything, not thankfulness because of everything, but thankfulness in everything. And then we say to ourselves, wait a minute, how can I possibly be thankful when I'm going through this terrible ordeal? Well, Paul shows us. 
If you keep reading, and that may be a good thing to do this week, look at Philippians chapter 4. Go on to see what Paul says in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. He tells you exactly how to be thankful even in the worst of circumstances. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We've talked through the Psalms about how meditating, from, a, from the Bible's perspective, meditating is chewing on the truth, reflecting on the truth to yourself over and over again so that it becomes an, a habit, a pattern of your thought throughout the day, throughout your life. So instead of meditating on your pain, instead of meditating on your struggles, Meditate on whatever you can thank God for. Although my friend has deserted me, I am thankful that God will not. Although I am lying in a hospital bed receiving treatment every day, I am thankful for the kindness and competency of these medical professionals. Ask God to give you joy, but then pursue it. Then pursue joy by meditating on whatever instills thankfulness in you. Don't simply face your troubles stoically and bear it. Shoulder in to the storm and bear it. Pursue joy. Don't simply rely on your medications. Look, Plenty, some of us uh, struggle with mental illness or chemical imbalances. And I'm not saying stop taking your medication, but don't rely on your medication. While you take your medication, pursue the joy of the Lord by meditating on whatever you can thank Him for. And in the heart of it all, what does Paul say? The Lord is near. We can't miss that. The Lord is near is perhaps the most important thing to thank God for and to meditate on. As a discipline, pursue joy. Now look, I, I, I firmly believe that, that some, some of us, some individuals, because of our temperament and personality, some cultures and some families and some, some religious traditions struggle with joy. Joy doesn't always come naturally to us. And based on our temperament, it may be harder for you or easier for you. Uh, if, if you have a temperament, a personality in which you are prone to high expectations and you search for beauty and excellence in everything and everyone in a fallen world filled with sinners, you being one of them, you're going to be discouraged a lot. I'm one of those people. Some of my closest friends lovingly call me depressio because I have a habit of having high expectations and then I get easily discouraged. Maybe for you, your ethnic or racial background or your family background has conditioned you to be more socially reserved, especially in public and in worship services. Okay. Fine. Some of us, our worship traditions 
have encouraged us to be a bit more intellectual, cerebral, or reflective and contemplative, contemplative, uh, than exuberant and emotionally expressive. What I'm saying is this, do not forsake who you are and where you've come from. Your personality, you're that way for a reason. It's by the design of God. You can give thanks for your temperament and your personality. You can give thanks for your background. But if some aspect of your temperament or your culture or even your religious tradition, if some aspect of all of this suppresses joy in you, you must reject it. You must reject it. If it does not flow from the grace of God and the truth of God, it is not befitting of the children of God. It is not befitting of Christ's disciples. And we repeat the words that Nehemiah spoke to the Israelites when they heard the law of the Lord for the first time in a long time and were devastated because of its perfection and beauty, and they wept. And Nehemiah said, don't weep today. Don't weep today. Rejoice. Feast. And bless those who have little, because the joy of the Lord is your strength, he told them. God's joy is fulfilled, is completed in people who experience his love. When Jesus spoke, when he taught, he often linked, he connected love and joy. For instance, in the upper room, when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples before he was betrayed and executed, he said this to them in John chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's a very special kind of love. As the Father has loved me, even so have I loved you. And then he says to them, abide in my love. Remember when I said, pursue joy? Pursue the love of Christ, he told his disciples. He went on to say, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I believe that only a true Christian can know true joy in this life. Because according to Jesus, true joy comes from knowing him and the love that he shares with his heavenly father and with the spirit of God. God is full of joy, and Father, Son, and Spirit share that joy amongst themselves. And Jesus is saying here that the connection to that joy, to the joy of the Lord, is Him. In The Lord of the Rings, there are many Christ-like figures. If you're familiar with the story, Frodo is like the sacrificial servant. Um, Aragorn is like the king. Okay, but there's Gandalf, and he just kind of reminds me of a shepherd. He's going all over the place, putting out fires, taking care of people, whatever they need. He's on the run. He has no home. He's just moving and moving and moving and moving and moving and moving and protecting people and bailing people out and overcoming enemies. And Gandalf, though he had great wisdom and terrible power, revealed to the little hobbit Pippin something very precious about his nature. Pippin had gotten himself into a lot of trouble and frankly had gotten a lot of people into trouble by his own stupidity, frustrated Gandalf tremendously, 
so Gandalf, frankly, in order to keep an eye on Pippin, has to take him under his wing. And at one point, Pippin says to Gandalf, are you angry with me, Gandalf? And at that moment, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien tells us that Gandalf suddenly began to laugh. And he came alongside of Pippin laughing, and he put his arm around the shoulders of the hobbit. And Tolkien tells us in that moment, Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. For the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry, yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing or it to gush forth. When I read that, I thought of Jesus. Jesus, though the Bible tells us he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus is full of joy. I'm convinced of it. I think when, when he brought those kids to him, when the disciples were saying, get out of here, the Lord's busy, and he said, no, 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 bring those kids to me. I think those kids experienced the joy of the Lord. I think he joked with them, maybe made funny faces, maybe tickled them. I don't know. I don't, I, we're too grown up sometimes to experience the joy of Jesus. And I think Jesus is full of joy. We're also told in the Proverbs, Proverbs 17, that a joyful heart is good medicine. And we're told that Jesus is the great physician. Well, I put those two ideas together and I'm convinced that Jesus has a sense of humor like you've never seen before. And I believe a day is coming when I will look into the face of Jesus and I will not only be moved by, you know, the scars in his hands and his feet, I will be moved by his joy. I, I will hear Jesus laugh and it will be like Gandalf's laugh. The, the laughter of Jesus will fill the earth with joy. And I'm convinced that his laughter will, will finally heal my pain. And, and will give me a sense of joy that I have never known before. We embrace the suffering of Christ. We're really good at that as Presbyterians. We think of our depraved nature and original sin and, and we, brace, we embrace Jesus on the cross. And we, we criticize other wings of the faith for those crucifixes that represent Jesus suffering on the cross. And we're proud of our crosses that don't have Jesus suffering on them. But do we embrace the resurrected Jesus and all his joy? You've embraced Jesus Christ in his suffering and his sorrow. Now embrace the risen Jesus in his joy. Hear the laughter of Christ in his promises to you in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the laughter of Christ in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And know that all of these are yours if you pursue them. Joy's not going to land in your lap. Grace did. But now you must pursue the joy of the Lord. By meditating on whatever allows you to say, Jesus Thank you. 
Jesus, thank you. And above all things, I pray that you will find the love of God in Jesus and thank him the most that he loves you. Because hints of his laughter are available to you now. Now. Not just when you see him face to face, but even now. Hints of that laughter are available to you if you pursue his joy by pursuing him. Oh, I went too far. Yeah, so, so the joy of the Lord is a blessing of the Christian life. He is not robbing you of your joy, but your fears and anxieties and the things you love more than him may be. Pursue him more. Meditate with a thankful heart. Practice the discipline of meditating on things that allow you to give thanks and in that pursue the joy of the Lord. We're not going to experience joy always while we exist in this temporary struggle with our sin in a fallen world. But meditate on whatever causes you to give thanks to God, especially in knowing Jesus Christ and his joy will be yours. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we, as introverts and extroverts, as, 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 recovering, as, as recovering people from, from, from whatever our traditions, our cultures, our family experiences, our personal temperaments, whatever they are, Lord, we recover from anything that left you out of it. Father, we ask that even in our sorrow and grief, you would cultivate in us thankful hearts, that we would see Jesus for who he truly is, not only the power and the magnitude, not only the suffering and the shame, but the laughter, the joy, the reality that he is alive and he has not forgotten us and he is coming back to wipe every tear away from our eyes and to make all things new. We wait for that day and until it comes, give us, give us Father, hints of that laughter of joy that we, Father, in our own way, but that we together and as, individually, as individuals would experience your joy in our worship your joy in our lives, your joy in our work, your joy in our pain, your joy in our relationships. We love you. Amen.